and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. After a brief stint as a cook in the Navy, 21-year-old John Williams started a career as a federal corrections officer that would span 36 years. With little formal training, John started work as a guard at the British Columbia Penitentiary, he now closed maximum security prison in New Westminster. John describes the conditions inside the 100-year-old prison just as you would expect, pretty grim. From the BC pen, John moved to the then newly opened Kent Institution in Agassiz, the only maximum security federal penitentiary in the Pacific region. John walked the tiers of maximum security prisons for more than a decade. In 2020, John published an autobiography, Life on the Inside, his first-hand account of day-to-day -day life working alongside persons convicted of the most serious crimes. Life as a correctional officer in a maximum security setting anyway, more or less lines up with the popular depictions of prison life in TV and movies, the ever-present threat of violence, drugs, suicide, prostitution, and homemade booze. I put it to John that my understanding of prison life is largely informed by Shawshank Redemption, and John agreed it's not far off from reality. John speaks in a no-nonsense, matter-of-fact sort of way, no doubt a way of communicating honed over decades of dealing with inmates. It's bright and sunny here in Vancouver, but I'm told winter is coming for us. This is episode 14 with retired CO John Williams. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. John, where do you want to start, man? Uh, what do you want to do? Just ask questions? You want to know? Well, let's start. Uh, tell me this. Why didn't you stay in the Navy? Uh, that was a good question because I got into trouble. Right. So what happened was, I mean, I love what I did. And then my sister got into trouble. And my sister was a bit of a problem child when she was younger. So then what happened was uh, a local girl down the street that she used to hang out with, which was a really good influence, my mom and my stepfather took a holiday and they had the house to themselves. She was 15 at the time. And next thing you know, I get a phone call and there's a motorcycle gang hanging out at the house. And it's the HAs. So I thought, okay. So she phones me and she's in panic mode. So I'm on the boat, but I'm docked. So without asking, I just got up and left. So I was AWOL for 24 hours. So when I came back, as soon as I got on the dock, the uh, military police arrested me. No shit. Yep. Went through my vehicle, found a coat from a friend of mine in the back of my trunk. It had a marijuana pipe in it. And they figured, oh, we got the biggest bust in the world now, right? So yeah. went on and on. So then I, had, I was escorted back onto the boat, and then I had to see the captain. So we sat down, we talked, I explained everything to him, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, well, he says, right now, he says, you're unfit for military duty because this is influencing your responsibility. So I'm going to give you an honorable discharge, and I'll watch you back on my boat. I'll give you a year. If you decide to come back, I'll take you. And then I'll end up in corrections. So what year was this? Uh, 1975. What were you doing in the Navy before this whole? I was a cook in the Navy. <laughs> How did that treat you? Uh, it was good. I liked it. I mean, we had no extra watches to do. Uh, we basically had nothing other than to do was cook, right? So, and it was good. I liked the people I worked with. Had a lot of fun. And the cook is the best guy you want to know on a boat. Because if you want something, you go see the kitchen. So you get out of the Navy with an honorable discharge? Correct. And where does that leave you? I guess kind of just a young man without well, a job. It leaves me unemployed. I took my pension out the year and a half that I had, or a year and eight months, what it was. And I went, okay, so now what do I do? Right? I had a car, which was fine. I needed a place to stay, so I stayed with my mom. And one thing happened there. She had a boyfriend, and my stepfather split up, blah, 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 blah. So I ended up moving in with friends for nine months. And then I needed a job. Couldn't find a job. So buddy of mine at a party one day decides, hey, what are you doing? You got nothing going on? I said, no. He says, I know how we can make some money. I said, really, how? He says, I break into gas stations and I steal all the tools and the cigarette machine and we take the smokes, right? And I sell them or whatever. And I went, okay, I know where we can get better money for those cigarettes. The Navy ships, they'll <sighs> buy them. Right. So yeah. that's how I landed up 
being on that side of the fence for a while. Okay. And uh, did something scare you straight from your, uh, your days ripping off smokes? Well, I was at a party one night, and I'm looking across the group of people, and I see this girl, and she's just like, hello, like my heart's coming out of my chest mm -hmm. and the whole nine yards. So I chat her up. We start talking, blah, blah, blah. We liked each other, the whole nine yards. So we dated, and the first date, I went to the house. I picked her up. I met her mom and dad, which was nice, right? Found out he was a cop, right? A staff Sergeant West Van Police at the time. So I went, okay, so... I just kind of just shunned him for a little bit. Then the next day, next date, basically, was dinner at the house. So I pull up in the driveway. Leslie doesn't come out. He comes out. He comes up to my car door as I'm getting out of the car. And he goes, John, he says, if you're going to date my daughter, he says, you need a job. Well, I'm driving a nice car. I got coin in my pocket. He's a cop. He's not stupid, right? So he figures I'm up to something. So he says, they're hiring at BC Penn. I said, what's that? He says, it's a jail in New Westminster. Oh, he says, with your honorable discharge, my recommendation letter, you sure as hell are going to get the job. So I filled out the forms. I went down to New Westminster, went to UI, filled it all out, put it in. Sure enough, I got a phone call. Were you thinking this line of work interests me, or you just want a paycheck? No, I just needed a paycheck. And I like the uniform. So I thought, okay, so you know, this would be interesting. And I'm, I like adventure, so I thought, why not? We'll give it a shot. So I did. Did you have any understanding of what life as a prison guard looked like in the, nope. what, where are we now, the late 70s, early 80s? Nope. I worked in numerous security outfits on and off between my gigs doing what I was doing on the side, but I had no idea. I mean, I saw, you know, I never saw criminals, right, basically. I just saw people, pain, anger issues, et cetera. But no, I had no idea what a jail was about at all. So what does that, what does that interview process work like? I appreciate you, you know, you were a soldier. You've got a pseudo father-in-law type figure who's gonna write you a nice letter, but is there a, is there a background check? Is there a fitness criteria? Oh yeah. Uh, back in the day, you used to run a mile and a half under 12 minutes. You had to be able to do so many sit-ups, so many push-ups, et cetera, et cetera. There was a training regime. But I didn't get trained until after six months of being on the job. It's changed now, of course, but back in those days, I mean, we were, they had no one on the jail, right? They were shorthanded. Most of the people who worked in BC Penn were ex-military, right? So it's like, here we are, here's a key, this is what you do. Okay, you know, gave us a uniform and away we went. So what what jail is this I mean, for people who don't know the bc penn british columbia penitentiary it's a federal prison it's a federal prison yeah and, and what's the distinction between a federal prison versus a provincial prison two years plus a day is federal time two years less a day is provincial time so if you got sentenced to one year and six months you're going to line up in a provincial jail if you got sentenced to two years plus a day you're going to line up in a federal jail and was the bc penn a nice place to go no, not really. <laughs> it was like archaic as archaic gets. I mean, you see movies and theaters where they're slamming doors and it's all about bricks and the windows are broken. And, you know, BC Penn, there was birds flying in and out of the main north wing. And it was just horrendous, right? It was, it was hygiene standard on a scale of 1 to 10. It was probably a 5, right? But... That's what it was in jail. I mean, we all accepted it, and that's what jail was about. It was a it was a hundred year old facility when you started working there. Yep, nineteen hundreds, nineteen oh one, somewhere along there. It, yeah, it was it was old and it had been updated again and again, but not really. You know how much you got to do. We're not in electronics back then. Everything was done manually. We opened the cells manually. You know, it was like all physical. There we were. We had to be on the towers. We were on the gun walks. It was just guards everywhere, right? So. How old were you at the time? 21. And what level of uh, security was this prison? Is this where the, the, the bad dudes go or just yep, the kind of bad This is a dudes? maximum security prison. This is where all the bad people go. Murderers, drug dealers, anyone doing serious time, violent offenders, sex offenders, everything was there. So she's a separate populations, of course. But yeah, it was it was the worst of the worst. BC Penn had a really bad reputation 
And it's pretty much why the government, I think, U.S. Minister put the pressure on to sell it. What do, what do the tiers of security mean? I mean, I, I, I can envision that maximum security sort of sounds like the name, but in, in real okay. terms, what does it mean? In a minimum, there's no fencing. It's an open facility. It's like uh, you're screened highly for this because, you know, we are endangerment to public, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have a medium, which is a little more open environment, right? You can come and go, his passes back in the day from one area to the other within the jail. And a maximum ain't is locked down. It's usually work, yard, or lockup. That was your three choices. And does it relate also to armament of guards or security patrols or towers? Is this structure oh, and the staff yep. different as well? Oh yeah, we had four towers, a motor patrol. Uh, we had gun walks in the north wing, uh, which was five tiers high, which would be five stories high, 12 cells on each tier. East wing, I think was 26 deep and five tiers high, but then there was the riot in 19, when I got there, 1976. So they shut half that down. So yeah, it was basically all done by physical, right? We were always there on the floor, right? Or around them all the time, right? So there is no one packing firearms except for anyone in a cage, right? When we had recreation, right? They'd go to an area for recreation to watch TV, and we'd have a cage in the corner, and we'd be watching them all the time. They're under supervision 24-7. And what's the, what's the significance of the cage? The cage is to keep them away from the firearms. <laughs> right. Because we sit up in the cage with a gun, and we'd observe from a safe height, right? So are, towers are the same way. Every tower had a handgun and a rifle. Are there still guns in, in prisons today? Yes. It's all changed, mind you. We used to have 303s and 38s. Now it's nine millimeter. Right. I understand, again, from your book that the pen didn't have a dining hall. So guys are eating in yep. their room. That seems unusual. Well, that was what we did. That's what we were used to. They, we do a count. And when the count's correct, keeper would sit in the middle of the floor, yell at us, open them up. They were open. Five, four, three, two, one. So we'd open them up. The inmates would leave. They go down tiers. That's like sterile case, back and forth, back and forth, all the way to the main floor, off to the kitchen, pick up the tray, and then they go lock themselves up. And that's how we fed them. That was the only way we could feed them. There was, there was, oh, four hundred and fifty inmates in BC Penn when I was there at the time. So I mean, yeah, where are you going to put that kind of population. You can't feed them all at once. You can't put them all together at once. So you control it. So you isolate them. So everyone had to eat in their cell. And then when we opened up, it was either back to work, you can go to the yard, or you can remain in your cell. And then we let everyone out, and then we lock everyone back up. And and I guess this is just what the prisoners And do. that's what they get used to. Every day. Every day. So what are the working conditions like for you as a relatively young man in a very old, decrepit prison where I'm still not very clear? You're just picking up how to do this on the fly? Yeah, pretty much. So, but you learn. I learned to watch the old guards and how they worked and how they socialized with their mates. And that was how my key. Every guard had their favorite inmate, sort of, right? Someone who they've either connected to or they had a conversation with, or it's usually uh, a CI, basically what they call them now, right? An informant, right? So, you know, some some inmates are really friendly, some aren't. Some just don't want nothing to do with us. And some of them just sit there and stare at us as we walk by, you know, but, you know, intimidation by stare, you get used to it after a while. So it's not a big deal. But with respect to the the whether this is a professional workforce. Have you, when you're, when you're walking the tiers, gone to a, a, a college or a training course or a school to, to how to be a corrections officer? Not for the first six months of work at BC Penn, I didn't. I had to learn the hard way. And the best advice that I ever got was from an inmate. I work in the five tiers, five high, and I'm 21 years old. I'm 
they used to tease me all the time. Cons and guards called me babyface, right? Because I'm just a kid, right? So I walk down the tier and I get an inmate down the end of the tier and he goes, hey, I got a pack of smokes for you, boss. Come on in myself for a minute, right? No, no, not falling for that, right? So then I get these two guys giving me a bad time and all of a sudden they hear a cough behind me and I turn around and the cleaner's leaning on, then this guy is doing two life terms, right? He's one of the badasses in BC Pen. He's leaning on a mop, he looks over and he looks at these two guys and shakes his head and they disappear, right? So I walk back off, I walk them up, walk back off the range and he says, let me give a bit of advice to a new guard from an old con, right? There is no maybe, there's yes or no we understand, right? And don't lie to us because it'll just ruin your reputation in jail, right? No one will trust you, right? Be honest, be straightforward, right? and just do the job and treat us like a human being and we're good. And I took that through my career. Deal with the inmates with some degree of directness and respect and they're gonna make yeah. your life easier. Exactly. So what sort of training did you get six months in? I'm just, I'm curious in the, in the I, I guess we're still in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, what are they teaching COs at this time? Not a whole lot, actually. I mean, we had to learn basically on the, well, we had correctional officers that were senior. We had yeah. supervisors on the floor. Yeah. They would tell us what to do. I mean, I worked basically static security positions, which was uh, because I was training weapons from the military. So it was like, okay, so you're in a tower or you're in a security bubble or you're in a, a, a cage, right? Or on the floor and you're working with senior correctional officers, right? So you were the grunt basically, right? Yeah. So, you know, the shitty jobs, yeah, we got them. Right. You want to pat inmates down? Uh, take him over there, Williams. Yeah, you used him, right? So. I, I know I was doing some research before our interview that, you know, now there's a National Training Academy. Yes. And I expect that today, before you step foot in the cell block, you've done a couple months or 10 weeks or whatever it is at, at the Canadian yep. Correction Service Academy. But... 30, 40 years ago, it sounds like that wasn't the case. Nope, there was nothing. Oh, I, no, there was training on BC Pen grounds, actually. But uh, we didn't get it until, like, most of us didn't get it until, like, six months on the job. So we're already doing the job. Now we're in school. They're trying to teach us what to do. And we're going, like, nah, that's not what we do in jail. <laughs> when, when I think about jail, and I think about Shawshank Redemption, and I'm curious to know what that movie sort of did for for jail guards because that sort of informs my understanding of what the bc pen actually probably looked like probably the same era sort of building and you know the role of the guards and the and the relationship between inmates and and officers any of that ring true for you yes well actually it's, it's about the closest i've ever seen in a movie ever to explain or give you an idea of what it's like to work in a jail that's exactly pretty close yeah right? I mean, I mean, good and the bad. I mean, good, yep, there yep. was... Um, there was the crazy guy. You're going to get those, you know? And you, you're going to... Back in the day, we we didn't know how to deal with mental um, inmates, right? Right, Men, right? You know, were challenged mentally or who were suffering from post-traumatic stress from something, yeah. right? I mean, we just thought they were crazy and we treated them, isolated them, basically, right. right? Which was the wrong way to do, of course, but now things have changed, Right. I mean, there was one guy I used to walk to tears and I walked by a cell and the whole cell's coated in tinfoil. The walls, the ceiling, the bars, right? And his name is, was Billy Bonkers is what the guards called him back in the day. And I can understand why. So all of a sudden I walk by and I'm slow down because I see all the shininess. And all of a sudden he comes running right up to the front of the gate on his gate, on the cell doors tried to spook me, which he actually did. I jumped back about two feet, and I went, okay, what's going on here? And he goes, yeah, I, I, the ozone layer, and he's got this little skull cap of chrome on his head, and he's going, it's really getting to me, boss, it's really getting to me. Well, I had some candy in my pocket at the time, right, these little tablets, so, and I thought, you know what? I said, I got something to help you, right? So I gave him two candies, right? I said, this will help you. It should calm you down, right? You need to sit down and relax, right? And he goes, okay, okay, boss, thanks. Two days later, I walk by his cell. He walks up to his door and he goes, thank you. I mean, 
kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier about just a little bit of respect, a little bit of interest, costs you nothing to give a guy a couple of candies. And if the guy is not well and he seems to think it's medicine, that shit makes your life easier. Yep, exactly. I think about the process from, you know, the police collaring a guy to a judge or jury convicting. And that now convicted person ends up in jail. And how the public has a pretty good idea of what the police do, either because of, uh, you know, footage on the evening yeah. news or there's a police presser and they lay out all the guns they've seized or the drugs. Same can be said about court. You know, journalists attend trials. You've got a artist sketching the bad guy in the dock. But then the lights kind of go out as soon as the person's convicted and they show up at the doors to, work, to your place of work and the narrative kind of ends. And that's probably a good thing in, in the sense that, you know, justice has been done and we don't have a lot of time for uh, glorifying or, or, or telling the stories of, of, of murderers and, and, mm-hmm. and glorifying gangsters. But it does mean that not a lot of people actually know what goes on inside the four walls of a prison. No, most people have no idea what goes on behind those four walls. Or, or, or what you guys deal with. I mean, you know, reading your book, um, prisons, you know, certainly in the earlier part of your career at BC Penn, and, and I want to ask you about Kent, these are, these are violent places, yep. both in the sense of inmate violence, of stabbings, but you, you depict, um, you know, walking in on your first hanging, uh, suicide, mm-hmm. hostage-taking, riots. I, I think people don't imagine prisons, certainly on the maximum security end of being pleasant places, but, but they can be really violent workplaces. Is that right? True. Very true. But, you know, they're kind of paired with a cone of, you know, professional silence or, or discretion. I mean, you go, I was on the um, Correctional Services website today, and they do have little news bulletins about, you know, seizures in prisons or maybe escape attempts or something like that. But there's not a, let, let me come at it this way. Someone stabs someone on Hastings Street in Vancouver. That makes the news. Someone stabs someone in a prison. I think that rarely makes headlines. Yes, very rarely, actually. It depends if an outside ambulance is called in. Right. And then we know. And the media picks it up. So why do stabbings happen in prisons? I, I, I've always wondered, why is it so hard for you as COs to find all of these shanks and blades? And so whether they're made in-house or they're smuggled in, you kind of, can you kind of walk me through how those those blind spots occur? Well, never, never, never many shanks, they call them, right? Uh, like shanks after dark, it's shank. Basically, it's just a, a homemade weapon, right? right? I mean, you could take um, a toothbrush, yep. knock the tip off the end, take a lighter, heat it up, take a razor blade, slide it in, right? Cool it, now you got a weapon, right? You could take a pair of scissors to bite them in half, done you know i've seen inmates take a half pair of scissors tie a piece of string to it tie it around the wrist and people go well why would they do that well it's because i don't know if you've ever been in a blood soaked floor but it gets slippery so even on your hands when you're stabbing another person you could lose it so that way it stays attached to you right i mean this is this is this concept these people think about you know i mean you want to protect yourself from being stabbed they take magazines and they're wrapped around their body right so you, you can't stab them. I mean, inmates, not all inmates are violent, but usually there's a reason behind everything they do, right? Except for the mentally challenged, of course. But you want to take out a guard and make a name for yourself? Stab them once, you don't have to kill them, but you stab them and you make a status in the population. You got a drug dealer gone bad, you got another drug deal or another one dealer, another dealer, you got two dealers at an institution. Who's controlling what, right? Got to take one out. Boom, done. There's usually somebody controlling the narrative in the background. Certainly that's a pop culture understanding that, you know, on your first day in prison, you got to punch someone in the face in the, in the prison yard, or as you said, stab a guard for status. It, it does, but does that ring true? Yes. Well, it doesn't happen all the time. It, it, it depends. It's, usually it's the, it's the punks. That's the street kids on the street. They want to you know, be incorporated in this little group in the prison population and to get into that, you know, it's, it's like a biker 
gets half a patch. He's got to earn that patch to get a full patch. Well, you have to do the same thing basically in jail. You have to do something to belong to us, right? And so they give him an assignment and that's what they do, you know? So when you say they, you're talking about gangs in prison? Yes, there's and, lots of them. So, you know, what can you tell me about that? How, I mean, how do those operate under the presumably watchful eye of, of COs? Well, we basically, you know who's who in the zoo. You work in a jail as long as most of us have. You get a feel of the population and you know what's going on. Intel information usually comes from um, security individuals and or the inmates. So we know who's who in the zoo. So, But they keep a low profile. So to explain how you can run a Kent, we had one guy in Kent and he ran the whole jail. It was like a military setup. So he was a general, he had his lieutenants, he had his sergeants, and he had his grunts, right? And he ran the whole jail. If he said, we're having a riot tomorrow, we'd be having a riot. But luckily that never happened. He liked it peace and quiet, and that's the way he ran it. So that's how you basically control it. He controlled the drugs, prostitution, everything that came in and out of that jail, right? But then somebody comes up and challenges you. Someone else comes to the table. He wants that power, right? Now you have a problem. So who do you take on? So do you go with the bad guy, the other guy? And now you got to watch, and you got to see, and you got to observe, and you got to document. You got to know what's going on. If you've identified the general, as you said, can't you put him in solitary and, and cut him off from his foot soldiers and, and put an end to that disruption? Well, normally if he was, he was a high profile and we had nothing but violence all the time and it was dictated to him, we could isolate him and then deal with it at the time. But normally these guys don't get their hands dirty. It's like, um, oh. They're acting through intermediaries. Yeah, basically, right? So they just sit in the background and they bark orders. What are you gonna get him on, right? He didn't do anything. You know, you can't prove anything. And the inmates are going to rat each other out because then you'll end up in protective custody, right? So you're going to be dead. You're a rat, you die. That's the word. That's the way it works in jail. So that's, that sort of brings me back to my earlier question, which is um, presumably if, if you as a CO see someone jerry-rigging a blade onto a toothbrush, you're going to put an end to that. Pretty much. But we're not going to put ourselves in jeopardy either, right? <laughs> We're not going to just open the door and say, excuse me, can I have that? Or try and take it away from them? Uh, no, put yourself in danger. So what we do is we, we document it and we lock them up and then we go down and when they're all locked up, we take three or four guards and we'll go in and we'll search a cell and we'll get it. We get it, we charge him and he goes to segregation. And is it just a lack of, of resourcing or intel that, that you just can't spot all the you can't spot all the homemade Oh, things. you just can't spot it all. I mean, you, you don't have eyes everywhere. Now we have cameras, you know, we can observe, but you know, you have the privacy issue too, so you don't have cameras in cells, right? So you have cameras where they gather, where they go to and from, but yeah, but you, you, they still, they know that, they can hide that, it's easy. You wanna pass something off? Yeah, you bump into a guy, you hand it to him and you don't see it, right? You see it on TV all the time, right? Right. So. To describe jails like to anyone, just take three blocks of Vancouver, your worst drug area, your highest crime, and shrink it down to a block. And that's what we work in. I guess that's where the concept of con college comes from. Pretty you, much. You put some operators together who know how to be violent or how to smuggle drugs or organize gangs. You house them all cheek to jowl. It, it sort of has a magnifying effect or an amplifying effect, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You mentioned that, you know, the, these kingpins in prison are bringing in drugs. And do you say prostitution? Well, prostitution in jail. I mean, the world opens up when you work in a prison. I have <laughs> I no idea it, what transgendered it. were, okay? I so, see. I see. So you've got those, right? So, I mean, you know, you get somebody who's, um, we had one at BC Penn. We, I saw more of it actually at the BC Penn than I ever did for the rest of my career at Kent. So... What it is, they dress and act like a female. This one was um, tall, black, good looking from a standard view, right? Yeah. Feminine wise. Yeah. And uh, had a chest, right? And 
in a male institution. You take guys that have been in jail for 15, 10, 15, 25, 30 years, and this walks in, well, what do you think, right? I mean, we're all animals as males. I mean, even inmates are more or so because they've been isolated. So guess what? Pack of cigarettes could go a long way, right? So normally what happens with that, though, somebody who controls, who's a bigwig, will take that person under his wing, and that's his toy, right? And he will pimp it out for smokes or Fuck. favors or <laughs> welcome to jail. So you guys aren't, aren't blind to this. No. No, we see it. <laughs> but for, we watch it. But for administrative reasons, you, you, can't, you can't stop it? I mean, I mean, surely prostitution can't go on under your noses. No, but... Okay, so in BC Penn, sex with another male was illegal. Okay, that, that was the fact, right? But sometimes to keep peace on the waterfront, you have to not look at the waves. Right, so right. you just kind of turn a blind eye for it because it's not hurting anybody, and it's keeping the lid on things. So yeah, 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 okay. Right, a live and let live. Yes, to some degree. Yes, to some degree. Surely that doesn't apply to drugs getting in the prison. No, though. no, no. Three, two things are worse than jail: alcohol and drugs, because they change personality. And violent people who rely on drugs and alcohol are violent, and violence in jail is unacceptable and dangerous to everybody. So starting with someone who's a, who's a hard drug user who, who shows up at BC Penn or Kent, are, are they sort of, um, their withdrawal symptoms sort of out of them by the time they come to you? Yes. So Brun, they've been pretrial custody. Yeah, there's pretrial. So they're usually through the pretrial system. Of course, you're not gonna get anything, so right. you know, even, well, in jail, uh, heroin addicts, they use... Um, methadone? Uh, methadone, yeah. right? So you, if you're on the methadone, you have a doctor and he puts you on a methadone program and you, just like anything on the street, here in the morning, you go and show up at the nurse's wicket, you get your shot or your drink and you go, right? So that's how it's controlled basically in jail, but that doesn't control it though. <laughs> that only this keeps a blanket on it for now, right? So how, how is, and I want to talk about the booze, because in your book, you, you give some pretty colorful descriptions to how that's, uh, how that's made. But, you know, the hard drugs, where's that coming in? Well, it's visitors, it could be, it could be anyone who's influenced by inmates to bring it in, right? I mean, um, there's cases, correctional officers have been right. pressured to bring right. it in, right? right. So right. that right. happens, right? I mean, you've got visitors, you know, uh, one of the biggest concerns we had, and, you know, the public would probably scream outrage. You got a baby. You in a maximum security jail. You got a woman bringing a child, yeah. right? Well, what happens if you put the drugs in the diaper? Right. So right. is it really bad for a guard, right, to want to see that diaper, right? I mean, you know, here you go. You know, there's a moral standard here, yeah. right? So... And that, that's outraged from some people from the public, and they go, oh, but you got to understand, they'll do anything to get it in. Put it in a balloon. Put it up inside a woman. Wherever, right? You get into visits, you go to the washroom, you take it out, you hand it off. Now it's in jail. It's an amazing network of hand-to-hand of -hand transactions you're describing, whether it's weapons on the tiers or, or drugs with visitors. Just sleight of hand constantly. Yes. You have drug dogs on site? Yes, we do now. At the time you didn't? At the time in BC Pan time, no, we didn't. Well, we didn't up until the early mid eighties, basically. Now we had drug dogs and they were the greatest thing you could ever bring into jail. I imagine. You know, and it made everyone paranoid when they saw the drug van or the drug dog with the dog, everything either got flushed or it disappeared. Right, right. Yeah, I'm a powerful tool, expensive to train and maintain and but well worth the expense. I would think. So towards the end of your time, or those standard at, at maximum security facilities, having a dog on site? Um, every institution should now have its own dog and its own dog handler, right? But you can only work a dog for so long, right? You can't bring him in, work him for eight hours. It doesn't work that way. 
right? Because it dulls their senses, apparently. So, so they work in, they do an area. If they got an area they're going to target because they got intel that says drugs in this area, then they'll do a surprise search. They'll lock the jail down and then bring the drug dog in. The guards will go in, correctional officers will go in and they start searching and the, everyone will get removed. Everyone will go past the dog, right? So if the dog sits on you, uh, that pretty much tells us that you've either been around it or yeah. you've got it on you, yeah. right? Did Kent represent a big change for you, moving from BC Penn to the, new, the, the then new Kent Institution? Well, Kent Institution went to what they call the Living Unit Program. And they thought, the government thought, well, maybe it's better if we put guards back in normal dress shoes, jeans and T-shirts, whatever, and we'll call it a living unit, and they'll work with the, closer with the inmates. I was still a correctional officer at the time, a CX, right? And I worked for, oh, probably a year, two years, BC Penn, and then I applied for the living unit program. And I love the living unit program. I got me out of uniform, right? I can move around. I'm not in a static post. I'm not locked in a bubble or a tower, right? Or drive around in a motor vehicle around the institution. I was more interpersonal with the inmates. That's what I liked, right? Because I knew most of these, some of these guys from BC Penn, right? Everyone, everyone gets to know everyone in jail, whether you're a correctional officer or you're an inmate. What's a squeaky new prison look like? I mean, what, what are the big technological or structural Brands, advances? Banking, new, painted walls, electronic doors. We had uh, underneath, underneath Kent, right? There was a way you could get in and go all the way around without being around the population of inmates, right? So it was safer to move weapons, whatever, into the bubbles. Every bubble had two sides to look after, two tiers, basically, up and down. Um, it was modern. It was updated. It had cameras everywhere. Everything was, every door in BC Penn was manually handled by a correctional officer. In Kent, it was all controlled by electronics. That was a big difference. One floor, one area, always under watch. And this living unit thing confuses me very much. You're not actually like sleeping. No, prison. no. Okay, no. we worked. We worked in uh, in teams basically. So we're in a unit that had 24 inmates, and we had a team that worked. 24-7 there, and during the daytime, right, we were in civilians on the floor, right, we were more interaction with the inmates, and that's, that worked. Actually. Like a social worker? Oh, well, yes, yeah, sort of. We did casework. Yeah. We, we started doing casework, living unit, that was part of it. We did monthly reports, weekly reports. We had a caseload of certain inmates, right, and we were the ones who had basically the recommendation to say, uh, no, I don't think you need to transfer down to a medium. You're not ready yet, you know, and this is why, all right? So we were the first line of defense, basically. And it was, it was different, right? I mean, the inmates, there's no agitation. I mean, they had to live with us. We had to live with them. We had to make it work, and it worked. When someone shows up doing federal time, so they're going to be there for a while, are most people pretty, pretty scared? You know, people, you know, crying, upset. I'm assuming most people in prison are innocent. They'll tell you that much. It's all a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, you get the stories, but <laughs> there's, in my career, basically, I've seen kids come in that were not much older than me with a chip on their shoulder and they think, they can survive anywhere, right? And then we've got the, uh, the murderers, people who do um, um, violent crimes, have a shell around them. I find sex offenders that come in, they're more a little on the wimpy side. So they're crying about this and then the other thing, and oh my God, you know, like, reality sets and you're in jail. Like, wow, no, you've lost everything that you had on the street or anything you know was freedom is now gone. You know, and it's an overpowering effect. You know, suicide happens. 
you know, we try to monitor it. It was a big issue for the longest time in jail. So they trained us and they gave us great training. So, you know, we could see, you know, maybe this guy's going to do so. Then we put him on watch and we put him on the watch list, basically. And if we think he's tempted it, then we segregate him and we put him on 24-hour surveillance, right, to make sure he doesn't injure himself. When you say suicide's a problem, I mean, how, how many suicides are we talking about? Well, it can happen for different, various reasons. One is you could take a, an old inmate, puts pressure on a younger inmate for sexual favors, and then all of a sudden he can't handle it anymore, and without any indication, you open the door and this guy's hanging in his closet. Fuck. And the first response is you just sit there and you look and you go, oh my God. And then, of course, we have to lift him up and see if we can get him back we're doing first aid and usually no no if you're going to commit suicide in training that we got if you're serious about it the first time you'll always succeed if you're still serious about it you usually succeed after the third event and i gather this wasn't a rare occurrence this this was in the 80s it is my first one was in bc pen and that's exactly what happened. He was getting pressured by another inmate. I found this out later, and he hung himself. And he actually, what he did is he choked himself to death, basically. I mean, you know, everyone pictures hanging yourself. You see the trap door open, you drop down. There's no such thing. What they do is they wet a sheet, they stretch it out, they tie it around their neck as tight as they can, and as it dries, it shrinks, or they just hang themselves so they choke. Fuck. Awful. Yes. Awful. Never underestimate human nature, though. Do you perceive any of the any of the inmates actually straightening out in prison? It was so horrible. You saw their behavior um, or their their outlook on life change, and you believe when uh, when they're being discharged that you were never going to see them again. I can count on one hand how many inmates that I know that left and never came back, and I know one to this day. He was doing life, and he's been out. I'd say at least 25 years and well-established in the community. Well, but you think that's the exception? That's the exception. They are the exception. The, the reform rehabilitation that I think prisons are supposed to achieve, you're not convinced? No. You can't change yourself unless you want to change yourself. Now, if you're given the tools you're an alcoholic and you go to AA, you need to put yourself there first. Now, they've got the toolkit for you to make you not drink anymore. Well, correction does the same thing, but you can't force somebody to change unless they want to change themselves. In, in your day, certainly the maximum security setting, and I know you transitioned in the 90s um, down to medium and then eventually um, sort of a low security unit. Was there much by way of programming to achieve this end for prisoners who, who wanted to change or get yeah. an education? Or? There was basic programs and even in BC Penn we had, right? I mean, but when Kent opened up in 1980 or 79, actually, it, it changed because they had more and more programs and more and more staff trained to work with the inmates. And that made a change. These were correctional officers trained to administer the program, or, or separate nope, staff. These are non-correctional officers, right? We had, you know, and I, like now they have like institutional parole officers in jail that work. We have programs. You got the AA, you got the Lifeless Group, you've got all sorts of groups. You got the Native Brotherhood Fellowship, you know, uh, to understand natives based native beliefing, right? I mean, it's all education that they have is there for them to do it. But you can't drag a guy into something he doesn't want to do. You know, some guys get so ingrained in the way they have their life that they want to change. So how do you change that? Yeah. That's the issue. In your book, you expressed, I suppose, apprehension in the early 80s when female correction officers were introduced to the workplace. But you... Um, seem to quickly acknowledge that maybe your your preliminary views were wrong. And I, 
I, I gather you grew to, to really appreciate women in the workforce. When I started in BC Penn, there was no female guards on the floor. Females were secretaries, that sort of thing. I mean, and then when Ken opened, it was the same way. And in mid-80s, they decided to bring in, we heard the rumor, female correctional officers. So we're all going like, oh, great, right? Sammy's going to come in. There's two of us sitting in the office, right? Takes a swing. Who do you think he's going to hit? He's going to hit her. He's going to hit him. Of course, the rumor mill spreaded. Guards talk, blah, 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 blah. So they brought in correctional officers in the security capacity at first, right? In the bubbles and stuff. And then things changed, right? You know, the guards changed their attitude. They went up to the bubble and asked them if they wanted coffee and eat something to eat, is there anything we could do for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then when they became on the floor is when it they changed, they made a profile. Like you walk around in a prison, I mean, you see a guy walking down a tier, an inmate goes to the shower, he's going back to his cell, right? He's naked. That's common, right? Really? I mean, it's all men, right? Yeah. I mean, really, what, what, what are you hiding, right? So... When the women came in, that changed how inmates changed. It, it was like respectful, right? They had towels on. They made sure that they were dressed properly in the cells. They knew when we were doing a range walk, so they would make sure that, you know, they're, they're highly respected. And you find that I have worked with one female officer, and she was great. She, she, had, she was tough. She was just as tough as most correctional male officers I've worked with. But she had a side to her, and the inmates came and always wanted to talk. So an inmate's not going to come to me and say, oh, my girlfriend, I got a problem. We had a bad visit, blah, blah, blah. This went wrong. I said the wrong thing, right? So I, was, I worked with her. So I'd get an inmate. He'd walk by the door back and forth, back and forth. She'd look at me, and she says, go for a coffee next door. So I go for a coffee next door, and I said, I'm right there if you need me. She says, I know. And then he'd come in, and he'd spill the beans to her. I'd see him later, right? And he's all happy, right? So whatever conversation they had, right, he was happy with it. It changed the mentality of the inmates. I mean, there was good and bad in any uniform. Sure. There's good and bad male and female, yeah. right? I mean, that's just the way it is, right? But when they brought females in, I was dead set against it. But I tell you, it sure changed my view. And working with... I call her G. She was the, one of the best officers I ever worked with in my career. Wow. I mean, <clears throat> and she'd have my back anytime. So if I'm on a tier, I got an inmate getting confrontational with me over something, right? She'd be, I look over my shoulder and she's right there. Sounds like they're a civilizing yes. addition. Yes. They would civilize the inmate population hugely. Were you, were you hands on with inmates? Frequently, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned your book and just now um, an aggressive posture taken by inmates or um, you find yourself outnumbered in a, on a cell block somewhere, but were you getting in scuffles or restraining inmates with, with frequency? Well, I mean, normally it all depended. In 36 years of my career, I never once got assaulted. So that has to tell you something. Fuck so, yeah. and. Working in a, in, in, if you're going to go take an inmate out of a, a cell and he's going to go to the hole, of course, he doesn't want to go, right? I was usually the first guy in the door, right? I had the handcuffs. I'm the little guy. The guy behind me are all six foot two, six foot four, big guys. So I'd walk in the door and yeah, I mean, I just look at him and say, hey, two ways to go. You can either put these on and we go to the hole or you can deal with the guys behind me. Your choice. Right. 90% of the time, they stuck their hands out. So, but yes, you know, I mean, you, you can never show weakness in jail. You can never back down from enemy, right? Doesn't mean you have to get confrontational. You just have to stand your ground, right? Now, you look him in the eye, right? And you tell him, right, you're not going anywhere, right? And you try and talk him down. And that's usually, I find, worked for me hugely. What's the hole? Supermax, that's what the MA population call it. It's a segregation unit, which they've taken out now. They call it something else. It's where we used to take the, the violent inmates or um, inmates who have been threatened, right? And we'd put them in there, and then we'd do a, um, 
30 days, we evaluate them. You know, if they get charged, they go to court, right? Just much like you see at a court, court of law, right? Except they don't have a lawyer. Now they have lawyers, so that's changed. So it's segregate. It's a higher security level, 24-hour surveillance, and they see them pretty much uh, every hour. So you walk by the cell every hour. You do range walks hourly and make sure everything's sleeping. They're under constant supervision. They only get an hour back in the day. Exercise, right? So you put them in the yard, you know, uh, they get out for showers, and that's pretty much up. They're pretty much locked up 23 hours a day. And they're, they're isolated. Back they're, in the day. Yeah, they're isolated from the main population. So the inmate doesn't want to go there because... They're bored stiff, can't talk to anyone. No, you can't get it, you can't do anything. There's no, there's no, I mean, you could talk from one cell to the next cell, but no, there's no, there's no contact with anyone except uh, for the guards. This is what people call solitary confinement. Yeah. Yes. And that sort of in, um, maybe it was controversial in your time at Kent, but it's become increasingly, I think, challenged in the courts and public opinion about whether that's an appropriate way to treat people, whether it's cruel and unusual punishment, what's, what's your take as an effective deterrent or punishment? How, did, how, does, how does someone look after they've been in solitary for 30 days? It's good and bad in anything. Solitary confinement, it, to me, is a requirement. Right? You, need, you need to be able to isolate, evaluate, and determine what you're going to do with this individual. Right? be it he's being threatened or he's stabbed somebody, whatever. I mean, consolidated in BC Penn, it was a big challenge, and it was it basically one in court, sort of. But you have to understand, it, there has to be some place to put these bad individuals to evaluate. Like, you slug an officer, you're going to the hole back in the day. So, And then you get evaluated, and then 90 times out of 10, you land up in a supermax, in Quebec, right? So, how do you, how, how, when you take segregation away, what have you got? I mean, they're gonna have to come up with something that's gonna work because you have to protect the guards and you have to protect the inmates. So, is this the same concept as protective custody? No, that's different. Protective custody is a whole different population. Back in BC Penn, you'd have, okay, what's the number of, say, 500 inmates? And you maybe had uh, oh, 80 protective custody. And protective custody is usually the ones who are the uh, child molesters, uh, the rapists, uh, drug deals gone bad, owed money to somebody, you know, they, they check in, right? So everyone has a right to do that. So we split the population up and would, they would never mingle ever. We'd move them differently, we'd feed them differently it would be like two different populations in a jail. Now that's changed. Now that's not huge amount of population, it's more PC basically. So you've got protective custody. So the child molesters don't like the rapists. The rapists don't like the rats. The rats don't like, <laughs> and it just gets spreading. It, and it spreads. And right? all of these groups are kept separate from each other? Yes. So do you have a whole bunch of child molesters having lunch together? Oh yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like sitting in that room if you could listen to the conversations? Well, These people feed off each other. Right? Oh, fuck. Well, that's a great question. I mean, you are for more than three decades spending your waking hours and your graveyard shifts with I'm sure some okay people who made some mistakes, but also some really awful people who've done terrible things. Yep. And they're what, small talking with you, saying morning gov, all that sort of shit. Like, you know, how, how does that weigh on you when, you when you go home at night and you reflect on, you know, who you spent your waking hours with? When I transferred out of Ken Institution, uh, in 1990, I went to Mountain. Mountain is a, a mixed population of uh, protective custody, mostly, right? And it's a medium security institution, so it's screened highly, population amazed. You know, you're gonna be around these guys, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so 
I sat there and listened to a story of a, a 25-year-old mail delivery guy. Uh, he raped his daughter. So I, caseworker at the time, I went back, looked through his file. I sat there and I looked at it and I read it and I'm going like, oh, really, 25 years, a federal employee. Right? So I'm thinking, I sat him down and then I realized reading the file that it was his stepdaughter and he had a daughter. So I sat him down across the table and I said, so I need to ask you a question. He says, what's that? I said, why did you rape your stepdaughter and not your daughter? And he says, well, it's not, not, it's not my daughter. I took everything I had to sit in that chair. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And that's when I realized I have a problem dealing with this kind of inmate. So I think maybe it's time for a change. That's when you knew. That's when I knew. Before I ask you about sort of moving down the uh, security totem, maybe this is a weird question, but I know in, in your book you mentioned having encounters with sort of some high-profile criminals, you know, Clifford Olson to name but one. Do guards ever get, you know, starstruck, for lack of a better word, when a very high-profile individual, who, who probably is a very violent and bad person, is in their midst that, you know, I don't know, the guards are jostling to work that cell or to... No, 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 no it's not, it doesn't work that way. He'd be on the hit list for every guard. Basically, we were watching him closely, right? He's the guy that's going to be high profile, right? So he's the guy we'd be watching, right? And who he socializes with, blah, 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 because you can't... We're not there to judge. They've already been sentenced by their, sentenced and judged by their peers, we're the caretakers, basically. We make sure that we do our best to try and make sure that they're ready to go back to the public, basically. But we're there to protect them and protect them from each other and to protect them from us and protect them from doing harm in jail. So that was our job. That's the main bones of it. When you were at Mountain, which I gather is the same compound as Kent? Um, no, it's more open. Um, they freely move in and out of the units. Uh, they freely move back and forth to work. There was a pass system in Kent where you're in a unit, you'd have to get permission to get let out. In Mountain, it's more of an open. They can walk out the door, right? I mean, you, but intertransfer, hanging out in other, inmate, in other units with other inmates, that was fine in a local area. But, you know, it was more of an open concept. The outside security perimeter, though, is double wired fence at Kent and double wired fence at Mountain. So high security outside, medium security inside. I see. And is this where you had your first um, observation of a helicopter escape or an attempt at helicopter escape? Yeah, I was actually, it was probably my first month being at Mountain. We were outside having a cigarette and then all of a sudden I could hear a chopper, right? And one of the guys says, what's that? And I said, that's a chopper. I said, I've been underneath him in the military. And I thought, he's pretty low to the ground. And we could hear the, the thumping of the blades bouncing off the ground. And I thought, what is that? It's, it's coming this way. And all of a sudden, we hear pop, 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 and it's gunfire. So my first response was, because I did 10 years at Kent, is to go back home, right? So I went to the front gate, and of course they wouldn't let me out, right? But yeah, it, we were all shocked. We talked about it years at a time. We thought, you know, this would be funny. You saw a helicopter just dropped in the middle of the yard, grabbed an inmate and left. What would you do, yeah. right? I mean, it's scenarios guards run off each other, you know? I mean, a guy stabbing another guy, what are you gonna do, right? So it, it's actually, it's a healthy thing because it's an education thing, so everyone gets a different idea how to respond. But yeah, it was like it happened, and we all just sat there and just went, "Oh my god!" So, so what happened? Did the helicopter actually land, or helicopter went in and, and picked up an inmate, two inmates actually, and left. One officer was seriously injured. I worked with for many years, right? Uh, he fired at the chopper, and it was it, to, to see it. To hear about it and to hear him talk about it, it was like, wow. I mean, where do you do that in your career in corrections? Do you ever think about a helicopter coming in and taking shooting at you? No, no, that that's not supposed to happen, right? So the helicopter was shooting down at the yeah. guards. Yep. Yeah. And it and it lands just in the yard. 
It landed in the backyard, and then it took out two inmates. I mean, this is Hollywood stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, sh- it should be a movie. So, so how did that end? So two inmates hop on the helicopter, they fly off. Okay, so they fly off, and they were supposed to be picked up somewhere else. So at the time, I was uh, dating an RCP officer at a mission in at a mission detachment, basically. So I had a little bit of inside information, right? So what happened basically was the night before where they knew we were going to have, uh, they didn't know we were going to have a lockup, right? So inmate decides to make a plan. So you had to think about how this is due to do this. He's in jail. How does he get to a phone? How does he get the information out? How does he organize this, right? I mean, wow, this is a maximum security prison. So he actually arranged for the helicopter to come get him. The helicopter then takes him from there to a place on uh, in Harrison Lake called Elbow Lake, uh, Elbow Echo Island, actually. They drop him off there, and a float plane is supposed to pick him up and transport him to probably the United States. So nine times out of ten, everything would have gone according to plan, would have been perfect. The night before, management decides to do a lockup. So we're gonna lock down the jail. Everyone's gonna be locked in their cells or in the yard, right? So part of his escape was to be out the back end of a works department during a normal work day. Well, no normal work day now, we're all locked up. So that's exactly what happened. So, the, so he heard about this, somehow he got the phone call out. He wanted to cancel the plan. Well, the helicopter part was already in play, right? The guy had, who, doing the job i'd already secured the helicopter from a helicopter pilot in hope and then took him basically hostage to fly and then away they went the float plane was canceled so he got out of the institution got to where he was supposed to go the helicopter pilot likely nothing happened to him and now the rest of the plan's gone mission rcmp went in and found them so, so the um, the lockdown had lifted by the time the helicopter was landed. The lockdown was on when the helicopter landed. They were all in the yard. Oh, they were locked in the yard. Yeah, so you had two areas. You yeah. like in your cell right, or in right, the yard, but right. no work day. You can't move around the jail, right? That's it. You're restricted. From Mountain, which is medium security, you continued to move down towards minimum security as your career advanced. Yes, play a minimum security institution at the time was called Elbow Lake Institution. It was a work camp. And is, is, that, is that common for COs to um, maybe when they're, when they're young and there's more fire in their chest, start it at maximum security and, and as they maybe are older or they've mellowed out or they're sick of the shit, start moving down? I think personally though, this is just me, I think everyone who starts as a crutch officer should work in a max. You need to see the worst of the worst first. You need to see what you're dealing with, right? Spend minimum five years before you could transfer and then work in a medium. And then work your way from a medium, if you want, down to a minimum, you know, and then you can go to a work camp or whatever. But you need to see what you're working with. If you walk into a minimum or a medium and work there all your life, you have no idea because you don't see the level of violence that we see in a max, you know? But violence doesn't matter where it is or what level of security it's at. They're all violent. Just takes the right chemistry and the the right incident and away it goes. What's day-to-day like as a CO at Elbow Lake or at a a minimum security? It's good. I mean, the inmates have a different attitude. There is no fence. We're not in uniform, right? I mean, we work closely with them, but there's still a barrier. We're correctional officers, they're inmates. We right. know that. They know that. That's the way it works. But yeah, I mean, it, they're friendly. I mean, we do escorts with them. We work more closely with them there and on to working them to the street than medium or maximum, of course. I expect this is probably a better quality of life for a guard working a minimum. Yes. No, no stress, no banging gates. You go <clears throat> to in a canned institution to get to the living units, there's three doors at the front gate. There's three more doors to get down to the main hall, right? There's two more doors and a security door to get to the living area. 
and then two doors to get into the living area. So it's always bang, 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 bang behind you, and it's always there. It never goes away. When did you know you wanted to write a book about your career? I had an interesting life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought, this would make a good story. And I thought, I have a grandson, he's six years old, and I thought, it's a bit of history from his grandfather that he can read one day, right? So I also did it because I thought it was a good stress release. I mean, I, everyone says you don't have PTSD. I mean, everyone deals with PTSD differently. And I thought, I want to write my story, right? Because anyone who ever, ever worked in a jail knows exactly what that book is. Anyone who's never had worked in a jail. And I thought, if I give a story how I became a crash loss or in my time in jail, and the stories are true, why? That would give somebody an idea of what it's like to be a correctional officer. And anyone who wants to be a correctional officer, I would highly recommend you read my book. You speak highly of your, your colleagues and, and the job. It, it's not a um, uh, cautionary tale. I don't read it that way. No, it's you, not. It, it's a positive reflection on your time. I've met a lot of good friends. And you create a bond in jail. When you're working around violence all the time, you, you create a bond. Okay, so getting back to the male-female stage. Okay, so when we had female correctional officers, you put a male and a female in a hostile environment, and I guarantee you within six months, they'll know more about each other personally yeah. than their own spouses would because that's what it does. It creates a bond. Okay. And in a maximum security jail, yeah, you need to know who's got your back, as they say, right? You need to know you could trust the guy. When you walk in that cell and an inmate pulls a knife on you, you're not going to turn around and he's not going to be there, right? You need to know you have a backup. And that bond, when you deal with incidences after a while, you create a really tight group of staff that trust each other, right? And when we retire, it's still there, right? It, that's never gonna go away, right? It's a bond, it's something we've shared with these people, part of our life. The, the people that you've shared such a, such a bond with, what do, they, what do they make about you writing a book? A lot of them liked it, actually. Some of them were a little surprised about how I did, uh, what it was my younger day, but yeah. yeah, they pretty much reflected, they said I reflected everything that they would say basically what happens in jail, right? John, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Appreciate your service. I certainly recommend anyone out there who's interested in your work or potentially working in prison so that they give your book a read. Thank you very much, Daniel. If you enjoyed my conversation with John, you should do two things. Subscribe to Under Reserve on whatever platform you get the show through and leave us a review. You should also order a copy of John's book, Life on the Inside, One Correctional Officer's Story, from Friesen Press or Amazon. Coming up next time on the show is a very special guest, retired Colonel Bernd Horn. Colonel Horn served with the Canadian Airborne Regiment, 3 Commando, in the early 1990s, and by 2007 was the Deputy Commander of the Canadian Special Forces Command. Although retired from the forces, he continues to serve Special Operations Community is a command historian and adjunct professor of history at RMC. But that's for next time. Until then, we're under reserve.